You know, we have another year of solemn assembly behind us. And as I look back upon the week, my heart is full of gratitude to God and to you as you came and joined us. Some of you one or two nights, others of you every night. To seek God for yourself and for this church in this coming year. But as I look ahead, I always have some concern. Because if our pattern for the last years is any indication, in barely one month before the next concert of prayer appears in February, this uh, huge enthusiasm for corporate prayer and glad participation in it, to the extent that 200 to 250 people were out every night, dissipates very rapidly and shakes down again to the core of about 50 or 60 people. And so this year I want to do something intentional about it that I haven't done in other years. I want to preach this morning at the other end of Solemn Assembly on maintaining the momentum. And I realize that I have a formidable task before me. This past week at staff meeting I asked them the question, I said, look, this is what I'm going to be doing today. What would you say to the people that you influence in this church if you want to encourage them to maintain the momentum to, uh, that, to corporate prayer and the delight that was so evident? And so I jotted down all the suggestions that came. You know what happened on Monday, Tuesday when I started preparing for my message and started looking at all those suggestions? I realized something. I realized that by far the majority of the, the comments had to do with the obstacles that get in the way and far fewer on the solution. It reminded me once again that we are far better at diagnosing our problems than we are at providing appropriate solutions. And as I continued reflecting on it this morning, I'm not going to talk about the obstacles. I'm not going to list all the things that get in the way that cause this dissipation and try and address them or exhort them and what have you. Instead, I really felt I needed to do something completely different, that I needed to do something by the grace of God that would inspire two things, faith and passion. Faith that prayer matters, corporate and individual prayer and passion to some form or another that also gets the conviction into the feeling level at the heart. Now the Bible tells us that faith comes from hearing the word of God. So I'm going to set scripture before you. And experience tells us that passion or feeling of some sort comes from some kind of image. Used in the broadest sense. Pictures, stories, what have you. And even that little video just proved that for us once again. And my hope is that those two will work in tandem. That explanation and imagination will both work together today to secure the kind of perseverance in this joyful experience that we've shared with in last week. And while I also realized that was my concern about the dissipation of our commitment to corporate prayer, I also realized that I finished this sermon, that some of the things that I'm going to share today are also going to inspire you to continue in your private, personal prayer life as well. And really the two of them are very closely connected together. For if we are seeking after God in private, hungering after Him, we're going to welcome the corporate opportunities to gather together so that the little flames that are flickering within our hearts can join together with the like-minded hearts and flames and become a, the kind of conflagration that we experienced during this past week. Another one of the first things we need to settle is that we will never understand what prayer is unless we understand that life is war. Let me read these verses from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Will you read them together with me, please? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now Paul is writing these words after two to two and a half chapters where he's talking about everyday life. He's talking about how to get along in church, how to walk in a life of purity. He's talking about husbands and wives and marriage. He's talking about parents and children. And he's talking about the uh, employers and employees in the workplace. In other words, he's talking about the nitty gritty of life. And after that, he talks about warfare. That says to us that every dimension of the Christian life, private and corporate, has an enemy that is ruthlessly attacking us. And for this warfare, we have been given weapons. But then he goes on to say to us that the foundational strategy is prayer. Prayer is not just one of five or six weapons that you can use once in a while. It is the means by which every other weapon that we have in our arsenal is deployed in this battle. Life is war. That's the scripture site. Where do I go for the image? Some of you may have heard me tell the story before it bears repetition. Long ago, 15, 20 years, I can't remember when. It was during the time when we used to have these huge family gatherings uh, uh, every Christmas. Some of you are aware of that, uh, many years ago. And uh, I walked into the den of my brother-in-law's house and saw about 10 or 11 of the cousins kind of draped over the furniture in various positions watching a movie. And so I stayed there and this, uh, it was a movie called The Hunt for Red October. The heart of the story is that a, a very senior level uh, naval intelligence officer from Russia is defecting to the United States. And the Russians, of course, want to catch and he's defecting in a submarine. So they want to catch him and get rid of him before that happens. So they cleverly enlist the uh, help of the Americans by saying to them, there's this guy that's gone berserk, he's coming at you, and he's, gonna, he's got uh, torpedoes and whatnot lined up against New York and Washington. So you guys better get him too. So from both sides are trying to get this guy. But there is one relatively low-ranking naval officer in the United States Navy who, has, who knows this guy. He's trained with him before. And he is convinced that this man isn't coming to attack the U.S., but to defect, truly defect, and provide valuable battlefield intelligence. So he tries to argue with his own superiors in the U.S. Navy that, that this isn't true. We shouldn't be attacking this guy. We should help him. Of course, no one believes him. But he's very, very tenacious and he continues and as the story develops, he somehow finally manages to convince a very high-ranking official in the U.S. Navy, I think as a vice admiral, okay, if we get to the guy first, let's get to him first, but before you do anything, will you come with me, allow me to introduce you to this man, talk to him at least. So the vice admiral finally agrees to that <coughs> and they find the submarine before the Russians get to him. They land on the sub, get downstairs below and get underwater again. Uh, and they're talking, you know, and, and, and at the key point in the movie, the, this young fellow is, is sitting at the controls. Not that he's controlling and he's sitting at the controls and he's got the vice admiral on one side and he's got this Russian on the other side. And he's there kind of talking when all of a sudden the news comes, whoever watches out for these things says, hey, the, the Russians are on to us. And so they've located the submarine. And knowing what's happening, the Russians fire a torpedo. What do you do now? What does this guy do? 
He's got his own admiral saying to him, look, do the only thing that makes sense. Turn around, run away as fast as you can. Maybe we can outstrip the torpedo. The Russian commander on the other hand says, don't do that. You'll never get away. Instead, here's what you need to do. You need to turn our submarine directly in the face of the torpedo and you need to go full speed ahead straight at the torpedo. Now that's a suicide mission, right? So what does this young man do? Here he is. He's caught between two objects. There's an enemy coming at him. There's a torpedo rushing at him. He's got his own boss to whom he's accountable saying, turn around and run as fast as you can. And he's got this enemy guy saying, no, go forward. You know how he finally makes his decision? He says, I know this man. I know this man and he knows the enemy better than I do. So I'm going to do what he tells me, even though it is counterintuitive to visible reality. So he turns the submarine, faces straight the path of the oncoming torpedo, and he goes full throttle ahead. And so now they're committed. The countdown starts. Ten seconds to contact. Nine seconds to contact. Eight, seven, six, five, three, two, one. Contact! And the, and the torpedo harmlessly glances off the side of the submarine. And then the Russian commander explains what, why he said that. He said, you see, I know I designed those uh, torpedoes. And they take a certain amount of time before, after they are fired before they arm themselves. If you turned around and ran away from it, you would only delay the contact, give enough time for the weapon to arm itself, and you'd be destroyed. By going straight at it full speed ahead, you try to get contact before the weapon has time to arm itself. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is that this young man, caught in a dilemma with a torpedo coming at him, Visible reality says, turn around and run. And there's this guy who says, do the, do the counterintuitive thing. Fight. The choice for him was determined not by his feelings, not by what he saw, but by his trust in a commander who knew the enemy much better than he did. Listen, life is war. And we got voices all around us telling us various ways in which to live this life. In marriage and in parenting and in work and in church. But we have a commander who knows the enemy better than you and I ever will know him. And we have a commander who has given us a clear order. Pray. So what are you going to do? It would be wise for you and me to say, He knows the enemy better than I do. And there are weapons coming at me faster than I can handle them in every area of my life. I better do what he tells me to do first. There's this picture, there's the scriptures, and there's the image that I trust will overcome the inertia that causes this kind of dissipation. Now let me get to the specifics from this. Let's look at some specific dimensions of this warfare. I want to talk about children first. There is a huge battle going on for the minds and hearts of our children. And if you don't have your own children, you've got spiritual sons and daughters, you are responsible for the next generation, folks. That's why we got these things blazoned over us, unleashing our potential and leaving a legacy. It's good to see them here, all these young kids before us. They're a visible reminder to us. And there's a battle going on for their minds and their hearts. It is being battled. It is being waged primarily through the media and in schools and colleges. I'm not against these places, but that's where the battle is being waged. What is the foundational text of Scripture to inspire faith? Psalm 127. Read it with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. 
like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Uh, this psalm is usually read about in dedicating buildings. It has very little to do with buildings. It has to do with building homes and houses. In the Hebrew word, the house also has the meaning dynasty, which I think is what he's talking about here. Now, the fundamental task of parenting is described, or the aim of it, is described in verse 5. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. The gates of the city were the places where public business was conducted. Business deals were struck. Judgments were made. It was the place of courts. It was the marketplace, as we call it today. The fundamental task of parenting or the goal of parenting is to prepare our sons and daughters so they can fight in the real world, in the marketplace. We're preparing them for the day when we will let them go and to survive and more than survive to win. He gives us the picture of them as arrows in our hands. Our sons and daughters are like polished arrows. We are balancing them, we are honing them, we are putting them into our bows and we are shooting them out into the real world. That's the task of parenting. Now, how do we do it? The first part says, unless the Lord builds, three times is the phrase in vain. The word vanity in the Old Testament means futility. It means you build a house in vain, you watch over the city in vain, in vain you get up early, stay up late, burning the candle at both ends, if you do this task without God. That's the whole point. Unless the Lord does it, you're doing it in vain. Watching over, building, working hard without God in this task is vanity. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have hard work to do. There's often times when we literally have to get up early, stay up late, and deprive ourselves of sleep for the sake of our sons and daughters. That's not the point he's talking about. But you see, if you put your trust in them, then you're going to get anxious, and your anxiety and your worries and your frustrations will show out, and they become counterproductive to the aim and to the goal. Big houses dollars, all kinds of sports programs, all of these things may have their place, but by themselves, apart from an active involvement of God, will never succeed in this task of preparing our sons and daughters as polished arrows to battle in the city gates. See, that's where this whole concept of rest comes. He gives his beloved sleep. Sabbath rest in the scriptures is an attitude of mind that enters into God's creation. That's where Sabbath rest is rooted. Children are part of his creation. And so to enter into the creation that our children represent is to take enough time to discern how God has made them, what He is now doing in their lives, and then becoming partners with Him in the process of finishing that work. And while this partnership with God involves many dimensions, that's why you've got hundreds of books on parenting, and you need to read some of them. They're good. I want to talk about the one that is dominant characteristic. A huge part of that partnership is praying. Prayer that invokes God into this act actively. So that's the scripture. What's the image? The image this time is a story. A man that I'd never heard about before. Name is George McCluskey. I suspect you haven't heard of him either. When McCluskey married and started a family, he decided to invest one hour a day in prayer because he wanted his kids to follow Christ. After a time, he expanded his prayers to include his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, so three generations. Every day between 11 a.m. and noon, he prayed for the next three generations. And none of them, um, the second generation had been born at that time. As the years went by, his two daughters committed their lives to Christ and married men who went into full-time ministry. The two couples produced four girls and one boy. Each of the girls married a minister and the boy became a pastor. So he's batting 100 until now, right? Or 1,000, I should say. Then the first two children born to the next generation were both boys. These two cousins, upon graduation from high school, chose the same college and became roommates. 
During that sophomore year, one boy decided to go into ministry. The other didn't. Can you imagine the pressure on him? He undoubtedly felt some pressure to continue the family legacy. Instead, he chose to pursue his interest in all places in psychology. He earned his doctorate and eventually wrote books for parents that became bestsellers. His name is James Dobson. One man decided to pray. He decided to take Psalm 127 seriously and he left an incredible legacy. So there's the scripture and there's the image for you. Now let me move from the private realm to the public realm, from the building of nuclear families to the building of church families. This is battleground, folks, because, this, because Satan hates the bride of Christ, the church. You know why he hates the bride of Christ? We don't know much in scripture about the origins of Satan and his expulsion, but there are two passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that kind of suggest that the heart of the issue was pride. Our brother talked, uh, David Lewis talked about pride and arrogance. The heart of the issue was pride. He wanted to make himself equal to God. He said, I will make myself like the Most High God. For that he was banished along with the minions that he led in a rebellion against the Most High God. And to his utter chagrin and horror, mere mortals like you and I, through our union with Jesus Christ, have been raised with Christ, seated with Christ, the bride of Christ, the place where he wanted. And so he hates the church. And he's in a ruthless, relentless battle against the church. Now, there are many dimensions. He's wise. He's cunning. He's got all kinds of strategies. And that's another whole series of messages and books. But I want to focus on one particular strategy of his that is particularly pertinent to this issue of corporate prayer. Because, you see, it's not an open strategy. And those are the most dangerous ones. It's nothing to do with tempting to moral evil. He does that too. None of that. What is his, one of his most subtle strategies, especially in the prosperous situations in North America? Look on those things. Well, we got a mission statement in this church. We are making disciples of many people who will follow Jesus in authentic worship. Next week, I'm going to talk about our mission statement. And it is good for a church to have mission. It keeps it on target. Something to get up out of bed for every morning. And missions require, mission fulfillment requires structures. It requires strategies. It requires tactics. And all these things are good. And they are necessary. Otherwise, we're going to drift. Mission drift happens very fast. But there is in it one huge danger. And that danger is of, of beginning to trust in those structures and in those strategies and thinking we can do it by ourselves. And you know what I have discovered in the 26 odd years that I've been a pastor? The scariest thing is the amount of things we can accomplish without God. There is a massive amount of mission-looking stuff that can be accomplished without God, that has all the hallmarks of success, but is pretty hollow on the inside. That is why it is absolutely important for a church not just to have mission and structure and strategy, and you'll see that in the image that I will give to you in a minute, but it is absolutely crucial that the whole process be saturated in prayer because God's mission has got to be accomplished in God's way, in God's power, and with God's prerogative to continually fine-tune and change the direction of that mission. That's the scripture. <clears throat> Where's the, this time, sorry, the image and the scripture come from the same place. Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, the valley of dry bones. Read this with me. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter into you, and you will come to life. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And by the spiritual principles, they apply to us as the church today. Two things are important for us to notice here. That when, when the spirit first came upon those collection of dry bones, the first thing that was put in place was structure. They were all properly connected together. One of, the, one of the errors that we can fall into is to assume somehow that structure is opposed to spirit. Structure is not opposed to spirit in the scriptures. The first effect, the, the final life didn't come into a bunch of unconnected bones. The first effect was proper structure. Essential but not sufficient. Because then the lament was, but there's no life in them. And so the spirit came a second time. And this time there was life in that structure. Spirit and structure worked together. Both are essential. I am reminded of this passage every weekend and anywhere when I go to preach. I spend all week long studying and putting together some. Now people sometimes ask me for my notes and I tell them there's not much point. You won't follow what's in here. I hardly look at them here when I get myself. But this is just the structure. This is all the dry bones coming together. If I did with no, if I did no preparation, that'd be just a bunch of bones together. It'd be total chaos. But this isn't enough. This is not enough because there's no life in it at this point. And there will be no life experienced by you if that's all I came with. And so the latter half of the week from Friday and certainly before I get into this pulpit is spent crying out like Ezekiel did. God, you've got to blow breath into this stuff again. You've got to make this something living and active so that there is some hope that it will be experienced as living and active by the people who listen to it on Saturday night and Sunday morning. That's why prayer becomes so important. That's why corporate prayer is so essential in the life of the church. That's why we have our solemn assemblies. That's why we have our monthly concerts of prayer. That's why the elders meet four times a year to pray on Saturdays. Three, three times for half a day of prayer on the September Saturday is a whole week of prayer, whole day of prayer. That's why our staff meetings begin every week with 45 minutes to an hour of prayer. That's why the elders and the executive committee meet, begin their meetings first with prayer. We are absolutely convinced that without the breath of the Spirit, there will be no life in it. And by the way, the same thing is true for these orders of worship. The worships, and I tell them that, they put it together. Sheila put it together this morning. Last night it was Steve Doxy. Next week it's going to be Sham. The week after that will be Karen, will be Karen McClellan and uh, uh, Tara Levins. They all work hard. They, they put the service together. They give some thought to it. But that's just the bones coming together. They need to do it. It's essential. It's necessary. But it's not sufficient. Then they have to say, now breathe some life into this God. You know why? Because the sanctuary is battleground. This place is battleground, folks. There's a battle going on every weekend for the lordship and the supremacy of Christ in your life and my life. And there are other voices shouting all the time. 
And we dare not get into this battle without prayer. And I hope you will come praying, prayed up and prepared. You know, they could not enter Sabbath rest because of what? Because of what? Unbelief. Maybe you don't get anything out of these church services because it's not the fault of the preacher and not the fault of the worship leaders. He said, you don't believe. You haven't prepared yourself with faith to say, I believe Jesus Christ is going to be there in the midst of us speaking to us today. So you need to come prepared as well through prayer. It's true of all your ministries. Lay pastors, people who are teaching in the next service downstairs, all those who are teaching right now when they hear this message. Youth leaders, when you're working, when you're teaching with them, you've you got to do the work. You've got to put the structure in place. No last minute haphazard teaching. But it isn't enough. You need to then breathe life into it. Because, life, because the ministry is warfare. And by the way, I've spoken about church situation. Most of you spend 40-50 hours a week working. That's battleground too. You know these verses in Ephesians? That he talks about life as war. Do you know what the immediate context is? Before he gets to that in chapter 6 verse 10 and chapter 6 verses 5 to 9, he's talking about work. Your work is a battlefield because that's your parish and you are the pastors who are going out to those places. And their structure, and don't forget the most important structure in your work, the relationship structures. And you can be good at it. You need to be good at your work. You need to do your hard work. You gain respect as Christians by being good at your work, not sloppy at your work. But it's not enough. You need to breathe life into those work structures. Let me give you a story of, what, of one person who did that. Then my wife Angie went into a rough high school. There were few Christians there apart from one teacher, Mr. David Bunton, who taught manual arts, not the most spiritual course. Years after Mr. Bunton left his position, dozens of his former students became believers. Many have entered the ministry and now have become pastors and missionaries. I tracked down Mr. Bunton, who is now 70 years old and retired. He was stunned and choked with emotions when I told him of the many conversions since he had taught at that high school. I wondered how his influence had brought such a harvest. He told me that the many times, at many times he had prayed softly over his classes as he sat back in his desk and watched them work. But apart from this, he had done nothing to influence these students towards Christ. The only common point of spiritual connection the students shared was that they were prayed over by their teacher. You see how the battles are won even in your places of work. Prayer is absolutely crucial. <clears throat> Let me just kind of wrap this message of bringing us back to really what is foundational. We, 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 began, we began with the fact that all of life is war and we talked about children and marriage and church, um, church and work. If I had more time I'd be talking about marriage as well as a battlefield. And how prayer becomes crucial there. But that will have to wait for another day. But the, going back to that young man. When he was sitting in that submarine. What tilted the battle. The decision for him was that he knew the commander. Yes he knew the commander knew the enemy. But he had to trust the commander first. And so let my last image and last scripture. Come back to that issue of that. Most intimate personal relationship with Christ. And David talked about that. That Christianity is at heart a relationship. Here's a scripture that bears its own image. Jeremiah 2.13. So it's an image of drinking. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God diagnoses the fundamental 
desperate condition of the people of Israel at that time as thirst. And he describes himself that can satisfy that thirst as living water. And he grieves over the fact that they have forsaken him the springs of living water. And they have tried to get to other cisterns that are, cannot hold any water. And notice he says two things. My people have committed two sins. He calls them sins. And he also calls them broken sister, cisterns. Turning away from God as the source of living water to other things is first of all futile. Because how much water do you think you will have to drink when you go to a cistern that's broken? Everything is leaked out. There's nothing. And then he calls it a sin. Because to turn away from God, to look to something else other than the Creator, means you're looking to something that is created. And whenever you look to something that is created for your ultimate satisfaction, rather than the Creator, that's idolatry. It is an attack upon the glory of God. Now, if God is in his right place, he has a wonderful ability to touch created things to give you joy as well. But if you put the created thing in the place of the creator, then it becomes idolatry and it becomes sin. Now, Jesus picks this up in the New Covenant because we need to understand how these things work in the New Testament. And so Jesus says, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, same metaphor, but he takes it a bit further. Because as we've been learning in our Beth Moore series, the essence of the New Covenant is that it's internal. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, the, the tenses of the verbs in this are important. Sometimes grammar becomes absolutely crucial. First of all, he says, let him come and let him drink. Those verbs to come and to drink are in the imperative mood. In other words, they are verbs that command. They say, come, drink, do it. Then comes the next verse, whoever believes in me. And you remember, there's no verse division in the, in the Greek. Let him come, let him drink, whoever believes in me. And the tense in the verb for belief is not imperative, but it's present active participle. Is what we've been learning in our Beth Moore said. It means to keep on believing. When you put those two things together, you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that to believe in me means to come and to drink. Therefore, if somebody says, I believe in Christ... But their life is completely devoid of any relational dimension. If there is no coming to Christ, if there is no drinking from Him, if there is no relationship with Him that regularly goes to Him as the ultimate foundational answer to the deepest needs of my heart, then it doesn't matter how loudly and accurately they can profess the elements of their faith. They are not believing. Because the, to believe is to come, is to drink. And what... Well, it's not just a command for the sake of a command. Some of us as humans issue commands to people because our egos are flattered when they obey us. And we get frustrated when they don't because our egos are insulted. God has no ego in that sense. He's not built up anymore because you obey Him. He's not diminished when we disobey Him. It's ultimately for your benefit. He said, out of Him will flow streams of living water. Now we're so used to this who Sheila talked about uh, being uh, familiar and not amazed anymore. We forget what a, what a shocking invitation this would be to the first century Hebrew. For them, the thought of intimacy with God, apart from an elaborate sacrificial system, mediated through priests, according to strictly detailed rules and regulations, was unthinkable. Unthinkable that I could just waltz into the presence of God, personally. Immediate. That's what immediate means. It means unmediated by myself. 
And so I got to add one more set of verses to this. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 22. Ten and a half chapters of theological development that exalt Jesus. Greater than the prophets, greater than angels, greater than Joshua, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, a better tabernacle, better sacrifices, better priesthood. Ten and a half chapters of detailed theological development of this truth. And then comes the first, so what? The first practical implication. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. That's what it's all about. The privilege of access. And my question is this. If their neglect of drinking from God through an Old Testament sacrificial system mediated by human priests, God diagnosed as sin and futility, what do you think he would say about us when we neglect this so great salvation? When we have direct access into the presence of a holy God through Christ and we turn to something else, it's equally futile and the sin is intensified. Because that's what Hebrews also says. The same book that exalts Christ is shot through with the five most severe warnings in the New Testament as well. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? But please don't forget the privilege. Ultimately the privilege is what? That we have the Holy Spirit bubbling up within us. Not only do we drink, we become the source of drink for others. Is why he wants us to come into his presence. Let me close with one last image. Although this one has its own image in itself. Warren Buffett is one of the <coughs> greatest investors in our day. And he's also the second richest man in the world. With an estimated worth of $44 billion. Buffett is so famous that a special edition of the Monopoly board game features him and his companies. In June 2005, Buffett decided to help raise money for his charitable foundation by offering an online auction for someone to have lunch with him. You know what the winning, winning bid was? $351,000. That was the price of access to Warren Buffett. The price of access to God is infinite. Nobody can pay it. But Jesus paid it all. Christ paid the access price that you and I can have lunch with Jesus it's exactly what I'm not being sacrilegious. He says, let him come. I'm knocking. Let him come and sup with me. <laughs> Dining at Christ because he says, my body is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. The, it is priceless. You cannot pay it. It has been paid for you. All you got to do is to avail of it. Come and drink. My brothers and sisters, life is war. We have an enemy. The torpedoes are coming at us every direction, all the time, in every dimension of our life. But we don't have to run away. <laughs> no, no, no. We face the enemy. We face the torpedoes because we've got the weapons and we've got the way to launch it. And that's prayer. Now, now, I realize that one sermon is better than none. But I'm under no delusion that one sermon will do anything to, to maintain the momentum. Or ten sermons for that matter. I better do what I've just finished preaching, okay? So I'm going to pray. Can you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you. Thank you that you have been brought before us today all through the service. And you are the culmination. And, and we want to see you on this last and greatest day of the feast when the priests were going through their rituals. 
symbolizing the water that flows from the south side of the altar. Reliving and dreaming for Ezekiel's vision to come true. You get up and say, it's already true in me. Come, drink. And so I freely confess to you, Father, before this, po- this sermon by itself has no power to maintain the momentum of solemn assembly. It has no power to create faith or inspire. But I pray that in your hands, as you breathe life into it, your own sacred word would, cre- word would create faith that prayer is foundational and essential. It would create faith that what is at stake is springs of living water inside of us. And I pray that you will use the stories of your Spirit, working in the lives of ordinary Christians today, in the church and in the workaday world, to inspire us with passion. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I was praying for you this morning, I was struck by what I already said in the in the message itself, that the people did not enter the Sabbath rest because of unbelief. So that's what I want to bless you with. I want to bless you with the kind of tenacity that each week says, I will come into the house of God and I will prepare myself to enter in faith. I will let the word of God quicken faith within my heart. I will come in expectation that Jesus Christ will be there, mighty to save. The very first song that God brought to my attention this morning was, Say to those... Say to your congregation, He will come and save you. He comes every Sunday, but He needs hearts that are prepared to believe Him. And I want to bless you with that faith. Go in Jesus' name.